There we go. All right, so let's um, look at Revelation 19. We're going to start in verse 5 and go down through verse 10. So that will be our section for tonight. So starting in verse 5, John said, And from the throne came a voice saying, So we've been looking at the past lessons, the songs of doom in chapter 18. Um, Now we're talking about celebration. We talked about some of the songs uh, singing praise and celebration over the destruction of Babylon. I know that seems strange to us, uh, but God will be praised when all of the evil is destroyed. The Antichrist's empire, gone. And so that there is nothing but opportunity to praise uh, and give glory to him. And so some strange songs, like I said last week, not that we want, you know, Josh to lead the congregation and hallelujah, the smoke goes up forever and ever. And I I don't know how to put that into a song, but maybe you can. So the, um, the whole idea of that is that we will be rejoicing, all heaven will be rejoicing, that evil has finally been destroyed. Now, yeah, Satan's still out there. we still got the battle of Armageddon yet to come. All of those things are going to happen. And in the book of Revelation, that's going to happen next week. As we, we pass over that in, in like two or three verses. So in Revelation, he doesn't go into a long discussion of what's going to happen uh, in the battle of Armageddon, in the coming of the Lord, uh, as he uh, returns and brings his glory and his judgment to the earth. So again, let's go to uh, chapter 19 and look at verse 5. So here is the next song that comes forward. Uh, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this is a much better section than a couple weeks ago, right? This is uh, much more encouraging. And so we, uh, we enjoy seeing God triumph. And these are the things that will be, uh, 
be um, happening. They will be heard. This, this is something that will be seen, hopefully, soon. Amen. I mean, he's on that boat with me. Soon. You know, it would be great if this was going to happen in just, you know, a couple days from now. But whatever, it's going to happen. And that's what John is, again, encouraging the believers in the church in that first century. And, and of course, he knew that his words were being given. He had no idea that the church would be going on for another 2,000 years. He had no idea of that. Uh, he knew he was writing to encourage the people he knew. And I can see John on the Isle of Patmos as he's writing these words, as he's putting down, I don't know how, did he, did he get a pause? Did he hit pause, you know, for a while so he could write and, and put this down? Or after he saw these things, did he then sit down and write? I don't know how it all happened. Uh, but I do believe that as he was doing this, he was seeing people in the churches. He'd been, he'd been in Ephesus since the late 60s, maybe around AD 70, uh, when he moved there from Jerusalem. Because Jesus had told them, when you see the signs, flee. And they saw the, the Roman armies encamped against the city. They'd seen them destroy one city after another. Rome was done with the Jews, and they were ready to wipe them from the face of the earth. And so, as they came into Jerusalem, John took Mary and moved to Ephesus. And according to tradition, she died there in the year AD 62. Not, it's not written down anywhere, it's not inscribed, but that is the tradition. But John continued through that whole region. Now, by A.D. 70, most of the other disciples were dead. But John lived on. So for 30 years, he's the last apostle traveling through the churches of what we know of as Asia. Maybe he went to Rome. We don't know that. Maybe he went to Greece. We don't know that. We don't know what John did for those 30 years. But finally, toward the end of it, God gave him the direction to write a gospel. And so John wrote his gospel. 30 years after all the rest of the apostles were gone, all the rest of the scriptures had been written, John wrote the last. And he wrote his gospel. Then somewhere in there, he wrote three letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation. No one knows exactly the pattern did it happen before or after he went to Patmos? Uh, none of us really understand those things because he didn't write down all of his itinerary. But God was expressing through John what he wanted the church to know for the coming years <laughs> and millennia. God knew. John didn't. So John could see the people sitting in the pews in those little churches. He could see the people gathered in small meetings in someone's house, maybe in a cave. If you go to travel to Turkey, there's a region of Turkey called Cappadocia. 
And that region, it's mentioned even in the Bible, that, that Cappadocia area is nothing but these strange caves. Maybe you've seen them, and, and go home and Google it. <laughs> Look it up. Not right now. <laughs> Don't do it right now. But they're incredible places. And, and some of the tours to, you know, to uh, the travel of the seven churches, they take a couple days, and they go out to Cappadocia. And, and go into these caves. And these were caves that in the third and fourth century, the church hid in. And I mean, they're incredible when you look at what is done here. And they dug these caves into this strange dirt that is out there. And um, it's amazing. But the church went on and there were thousands of people in those caves. Maybe there were some in there. John's day, we know that the gospel went to Cappadocia. Uh, Peter talks about it. So this, this gospel about Jesus and salvation and all that he's done for us, but God also wanted the church to know that the end of all this evil is coming. And it, it's not hold on, you know, because I'm coming. No, it's not, a, it's not a defeatist. It's not a go cower in a corner somewhere and, and, and wait for me to come. No, it's look at this. God will be exalted. He will triumph. Evil will be destroyed. So no matter what you're facing, no matter what's in front of you, John was encouraging believers in his century and every century in between, there and now, God is coming. And he is going to put all these things into order. And he's going to get rid of all of this. And this is how it's going to end. Seven years of, as we've talked about from chapter 6 all the way through 18, seven years of some in, just incredibly uh, difficult overwhelming, catastrophic, destructive things happening upon the earth. Yet through all of that, God reigns. And he is bringing through all of that, he's bringing about his perfect plan. And it starts to come to its end here. And so in chapter 19, we've got this beautiful section tonight. We'll be looking at this section about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But before John gets to that, one of the things that he hears uh, after the song of the smoke goes up forever and ever. All right, so after that song comes another, but this is a command from God. Look at that in verse 5. A command to praise. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, small and great. Well, what's interesting is, uh, and I put it up there at the, at the top of the page, but praise our God is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hallelujah. So every other place here, four other times, he's used the word hallelujah using Greek letters to write a Hebrew word, all right? if that makes sense, all right? So, Hallel 
Yahweh, and that's the combination of the word. Raving praise, boasting praise, celebration praise to Yahweh or Jehovah. But here, God gives him the Greek words, praise our God. Because, and I have to think of it this way, because he wanted to make sure that the Greek-speaking people of the church knew this is directed at you. Praise our God. And so this was no longer hidden in a word. And somebody says, I, I, well, I don't know, hallelujah, I don't know what it means. You know, so, so they put it in a song and, okay, don't even get me started on that. But anyway, um, this is direction, and it's coming from where? Where's, where's this direction, praise our God, coming from? <laughs> from the throne. Now, the, the voice of the one who's speaking is not identified. So is this God? Is it the Son, the Lamb? Is it coming from one of the cherubim, one of the angels? That God has because we've seen this voice coming out from the throne in other places, a few times it's identified. But here there's no identity. But I have to think, number one, it's not really it's not the voice of the Father. And I can't see it as the voice of the Son, the Lamb, because of the pronoun our. Praise our God. And so it's not just praise God, it's praise our God. And so that pronoun is specific in here. And uh, to me, I believe that this is the voice of those angels, one of the cherubim or another voice of a mighty angel giving this direction. Praise our God. And the idea of this is that God wants his servants to give himself into praise. He didn't say, praise our God when all of this happens. He didn't say, praise our God when everything is resolved. When are you reading this? Now. So what does the command say? Praise our God. So this is not something to set aside. Yeah, every uh, in so many of these other places, it's talking about something that's going to happen at a specific time. But here, it's in a present tense verb. Praise, keep praising our God. Do it. And so God wants his people to know that we're not waiting for a certain time. Well, you know, when Jesus comes back, man, we are going to worship. It's going to be incredible. Well, why not now? Because he's going to come back. And we know the story. We've been through all of the junk and the destruction and the unbelievably dark pages. Now we're talking about a glorious return that's going to come up in just a few verses. And the Lord is going to descend from heaven. And yes, we will praise God then. But why not now? Yeah, I know, we're facing dark times, we're facing trouble, we're facing all kinds of things. Paul's day, they were facing the Roman Empire. 
at, at this time, they've got an emperor that hates the church, Domitian. And he's going to do everything he can to destroy the church. Now, after Domitian comes another Roman emperor who's agreeable to the church. So does that mean, okay, we got that done, so now we can set the praising aside, we can set all that stuff aside. No. Now it's going well for us. Well, then, down the line, another Roman emperor comes along. There were, by the way, ten Roman emperors who were extreme in their persecution of the church. And um, so down through the entire Roman Empire, until its collapse in the 600s, uh, this, this often persecuting, vengeful, destructive power would come. But you know what? The church needed to praise him in the good times, not just under the dark times, and not just in the good times, but in the darkest of times. When people are being put into the arena, burned alive, their blood is flowing. Praise our God. Jen and I, you know, we, we, we've watched several uh, of the episodes uh, about the Holocaust. Unbelievable. Just absolutely unbelievable. But what was God's direction to believers? even during the time of the Holocaust. And there were, there were many Christians put into the camps. What's God's direction to them? Ooh, that's hard, isn't it? Praise our God. We recently watched, and if you haven't seen before, um, the rape of Nanjing, the horrible destruction that the Japanese just visited upon the people of, of China. Unbelievable. Shanghai and then Nanjing. Nanjing was just unreal what they did. But there were Christians there. What's God's direction to them? Praise our God. Praise our God. It's a dark time. It's a horrible time. Praise our God. We got dark things on the horizon right now. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Or tonight. It's already tomorrow in Europe. What are we going to do? No matter what happens, what are we going to do? Praise our God. Yeah. You, his servants. Now, the idea of servants, you, his servants further modified by you who fear him, small and great. You his servants. Oh, I, God could give it a better title for us. Or doulos. This is slave. It's basically the Greek word for slave. Some of them were treated well. Some weren't. Many of those who treated well gave themselves as bond servants. And so they would, they would, even after they'd been set free, they would give themselves back to their master because living with his master was a good thing. What you hope is that a master doesn't come along who's not so good. 
that's what happened to Israel when they were in Egypt. Man, it was great under Joseph. Everything was great. People were growing. The nation was increasing. Air down there by the Nile River, lay on the banks in the summertime. It was kind of the Cancun of, of their day. You know, it's just, just this beautiful got sun, beautiful river, all those things. And then a Pharaoh came along who did not know Joseph. And now they're no longer visitors. They're no longer vacationers. <laughs> now they're prisoners. And then came the horror. So what does God say? Hey, you're my servants. You're my slaves. That's, that's a tough word. No, I'm the son. I'm, we're sons. We're not slaves. No, you're slaves. We are doulas. What that simply means is he's the master, we are not. That's what it means. He's, he's of the master class. Who else is in that master class? The Father, the Spirit. That, that's it. That's, that's who's in the master class. Everyone else is in the servant class, the slave class. If it makes you more comfortable, we can translate it servant. Most Bibles do. Because if it translated it slaves, it's just, ooh, that's dark and that's not pretty. And we've got the horror of slavery. We, we hate that whole idea of slavery. But yet it's there. So, we are his what? Slaves. He's the master. We're the slave class. That means what he says we do. We don't do something on our own. We're here to do his will. When Jesus came in the incarnation, that was one of the, that was one of the greatest things. He set aside his privilege of deity. He didn't stop being God. He just set aside the privilege of being a part of the master class and stepped into the slave class and took upon him the form of a servant. No, slave which meant whatever Jesus was going to do while he was on this earth was not what he wanted to do. It's what his father gave him to do. He did not have a will of his own. And so he gave that up. Why? So he could be with us and so that he could go to a cross and die for us. It goes beyond our ability to comprehend the Incarnation is one of the greatest mysteries that he would step out of the privileges of the master class, take upon himself the form of a servant, not the shape, but the form, the I will do what you want. You are master, I am not. Yeah, but he created the earth. He was the one who was holding it together. He's the Lord of creation. Yeah, but he stepped into the slave class. Set aside all those privileges. 
if he could. Are you a son of God, daughter of God? Are we sons of God? Are we? Yeah, but we can also step into that slave class. Yeah, I know, I'm born of God. So are you. I'm a child of God. I have full rights and privileges, right? But I'm also slave. His will, not mine. You who fear him. Well, I'm not afraid of God. That's not the idea. Don't translate fear afraid. And please don't lighten it by reverence. It's a strong word. It's the same Greek word for the fear of the devil, for fear of, of spiders. Uh, I'm not, I haven't found that verse in the Bible, but it's got to be there, because I am. But um, fear, phobos, from which we get the word phobia. And it has the, it has the idea of bowing before someone because they have power that you don't. So in a sense, fear is you recognizing the power of someone else over you. Does God have power over us? Yeah. <laughs> he created us. Yeah, he's got power. So fear of, okay, I'll just say it, fear of spiders means I'm giving that spider more power than me. Right. And you can say, well, you need to get over that. All right, I'm over it right now. Because <laughs> I don't have one crawling on me. All right? So I watch people pick up tarantulas. Stupid. All right? That's stupid. But anyway... Um, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not over my fear of spiders. Yes, I do give them power over me. But anyway, um, but the idea of God is to fear the Lord means I'm, I'm recognizing his power over me. I'm going to bow before his power over me. I'm going to see that he's the one. And if he says something, not only am I of the slave class, I'm also... One who fears him. If he says it, his word says it, then I'm going to say his word is more powerful than me. His word deserves my honor. It deserves me bowing before it. It deserves me doing what he has said. That's the fear of the Lord. You could say the proper fear of the Lord says, I don't want to live any other way than the way he says. Because living any other way than what he says could put my life in danger. And I don't want that. And so again, somewhere in there it says, beware of spiders. But anyway, <laughs> you who fear him, and then notice the next phrase, small and great. There's no one who does not fit into this group. We are slaves we fear him small and great no matter what your status no matter what your age no matter what your gender no matter what your 
what uh, what do you call it when someone has a your profession, your degrees, your that's uh, not the word I'm looking for. It was in my mind a couple minutes ago, but you know, no matter what I have, my the honor I think I need, the position I have, whatever status, that agree. That's a that's a word. No matter no matter what is back there. Well, do you know who I am? I'm small. I'm small. Small and great. Because this is, he is the one who holds this. This encompasses all human categories. No matter what your race or your gender or, or your profession or your status in society, no matter what, you fit into this group. You're his slave, fear him, and do what? Praise him. Praise our God. And because I'm a slave, I'll do that. And because I fear him, I will do that. And I'm going to let praise be my expression, no matter what I face. Now, I say that here standing in my pulpit when there's nothing going on. It's another thing to say that when trouble is overwhelming you. But it should be what comes to my mind. Praise him. All right. Next page. So how does heaven respond with this command? Praise him. All you slaves. By the way, that also includes the angel class. Because the angel class does not belong to the master class. The angel class is below. We were created a little lower than the angels, but given glory and honor above them. That's a little, a little shepherd boy laying in a field, looking at the stars at night, came up with that. God, you're so great. Man, what is man? We were created lower than angels, but given glory and honor above them. Wow. But we're still not master class. So what's our response? Verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. There's only a couple other places in Revelation where he's used that many descriptive things to talk about the, the volume and the significance of what's coming from heaven. Now again, uh, we talk about this being a, a loud voice, a great voice. Uh, again, the idea of that is not so much uh, in quantity as it is significant. It's not, it's, it's not that it's louder than anything. He doesn't have anything to compare it to. The roar of many waters. Now, again, I told you I've not been at Niagara Falls, but I know you can go there and when you're at the bottom of the falls, 
basically you can't be heard by anybody. Yeah. Like I said, I went to uh, photograph several waterfalls in in Colorado and or in uh, Montana, was up in the Glacier National Park, and even even one you know that just was like forty feet and one stream of water, it was so loud, and it you could hear it for a mile as we're on our way there. So this is this is significant. Not just by the volume of it, but by the, the, you can't get away from this. And so this incredibly powerful voice is going to come from heaven. Now, again, who is this? This is another whole direction that's coming from heaven, and it's tied together with verse 7. So this is just the beginning of what ends up being this, uh, song about the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and the bride having been prepared. But this is the beginning of it. And it starts off with this glorious, uh, what we know as the hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah! For the Lord Almighty, or the Lord God Omnipotent, reigns. Omnipotent, all-powerful. comes from a Hebrew or a Greek word, pantokrator, P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-O-R, pantokrator, and it's a compound, panto being all-encompassing, everything, krator, domination. Now, who is the emperor at this time? His name is what? Domitian. That wasn't his given name. He took that name. Because Domitian has that Latin, what? Dominate. And so he took a name that says, hey, I'm the dominator. I am the krator in Greek. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the omnipotent. Uh, no, you're not. You may say you are, but you're not. And he loved that title. And so he would sign things, and he would make people write it, and he, would, he had it put on the posts and the buildings throughout the empire. Domitian, Pantocrator. Now, you might call yourself that. God doesn't. Because you don't have domination over everything. God does. The Lord God Almighty reigns. It doesn't look like it. Well, he does. Well, I don't feel like he is. He is. Why is all that happening, right? Everybody's like, if God is God, then why does he allow? And we've heard that whole argument. You know, why does God allow this? And why does God? We allowed it through the fall, and we have propagated it through the fall. <laughs> and through fallen man and women, we propagate God's evil and all of those things, and it just keeps going on and on and on. But God's going to put an end to it. And here is the declaration God reigns.
Who's been in charge through the tribulation? Through all those things, God has been in charge. Yeah, it looks like the devil, looks like the Antichrist is in charge. Looks like the beast is in charge. What about the harlot of Babylon? No, <laughs> no. God was in charge of all that time. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Not will reign. Reigns. It's an absolute term which means past, present, future. Reigns. That's just it. That's all there is to it. God reigns. Now, a lot of people back up from the, the idea of sovereignty because when we bring up the word sovereign, it's unfortunate that it, <clears throat> in the church circle, our thoughts go immediately to God chooses who gets to be saved and who doesn't. That is not what we mean by sovereignty. Yeah, that's been borrowed and it's been misused in that way. Because first of all, he doesn't, but that's a whole subject that I... Not going to get into. Well, I'll get into it a little bit, but <laughs> sovereignty means that God created the plan. That if you believe, you will be saved. That's what it says throughout Scripture. His sovereignty is that that's the plan He made. Well, I don't like that plan. Doesn't matter. <laughs> God's sovereign, He made the plan. Well, I don't think it's fair. Don't care. God made the plan. How hard is it to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? So you got to do. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to do it my way. Cain. That's Cain. I'm going to create my own way to God. I'm going to bend the rules a little bit, come up with my own religion. We'll go on from there. No, that's not going anywhere. Because God won't allow that. It doesn't work. Well, the big challenge to, in a sense, to the church today is what's called universalism. Well, everybody gets to go. God loves everyone. God gave his son for everyone. So everyone is saved yeah, but some are Buddhists. Ah, God doesn't care if they're Buddhist. He loves them anyway. He'll bring them in. Bible says Jesus died for everyone. Yes. But it's only enacted if you believe. If you believe. So, God made the plan. And it's through Jesus Christ. It's not that everybody gets to go. Yeah, he died for you. People that go to hell, what? Jesus, what? Died for them. He paid the price. For them to believe upon him, that's God's sovereign plan. He doesn't choose who gets to come in. That's, that's not what sovereignty is. Sovereignty says... God made the plan. God sent his word. You speak his word and what? Things happen. Who made that plan? God did. Who made the plan? You lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Who made that plan? God did. 
That's sovereignty. Who established that Antichrist will not rule? Yeah, for a little bit of time he does. Yeah, you're right. A little bit of time. And then what? It's over. Forever. God's sovereignty. And so sovereignty doesn't say God chooses this one. He doesn't choose that one. Sovereignty says he made a plan. One of my illustrations that I use from this is God made a plane to get from here to San Diego. It's up to you to get on the plane. Well, I don't want to get on that plane. You don't have to. But if you don't, it won't go there. Well, there's other planes. No, God removed all the rest of the planes. There's only one plane going to San Diego. Well, is there room for all of us? The more people come in, the bigger the plane gets. Yeah. God made a plan. That's what sovereignty is. And so God does reign. And so this loud chorus rejoicing over the things of God. I put in the middle of your page there, Revelation 5, verses 5 through 10. Why, why does he reign? How does he reign? Because he paid the price. He's conquered everything. And by his blood, he has done all of this. Yeah. The Lord God Almighty reigns. You see, Pantocrator is not a title that you take. It's a title that you earn. And Jesus earned it. Dying. Defeating death. Defeating sin. Defeating the grave. Yeah, he reigns. Now, that song continues. Bottom part of page two. The song continues with this transition into the rejoicing over the preparation of the bride and the soon coming marriage of the Lamb. And so there is this, uh, this rejoicing that begins here and goes on into uh, the end of this section. So verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice. Right, this is all part of that same song. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's the song. A song of preparation, a song of the beauty of this bride, the glory of this bride, the expectation of the coming supper that will be taking place. And so this song then leaves us with another question. Who's singing this? Now, some of the commentaries I pick up, they say this is the bride singing this song. I have a problem with that. Be again, because of the pronouns. 
Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It isn't, I the bride have made myself ready. Right? So it's not sung in the person of the bride. It's sung as someone who is observing the bride. So in that third person uh, way of seeing this, this can't be the church singing this song. It has to be others in heaven. The angels, even the tribulational saints, the martyrs who are in the presence of God, they could be singing this. All of them taking part in what is being said here. Because, and again, this is, this is one of those things because we want everybody to be on an equal plane and we think that, that there can't be different, different levels and different status. And yet there be equality. The church, those who believed from the day of Jesus' resurrection until the coming of of the Lord, the end of this chapter, till the second coming, makes up a group called the bride. I'm sorry, till the time of the rapture. Yeah, till the time of the rapture makes up this group called the bride. That is the church. And the church has a different status and a different relationship with God than the tribulation saints do. That mean, are they, you mean they're lower? No, they're not lower. They just have a different status and a different relationship. They're in a different group. The tribulation saints, they got songs sung about them. In fact, they get to sing a song that we're not allowed to sing. Only the, only the 144,000 and the tribulation saints can sing some of those songs because we didn't go through what they're going through. And so they get to sing things and they get to be in a relationship with God that we, the church, will never have. We're spectators. And they are on the earth declaring God in the face of the most horrible things that we can imagine. And many of them are martyred, not all of them. And they have a status that we don't have. But the bride has this status. Now we're going to talk about the marriage here in just a little bit. Because at the marriage supper, there is the bridegroom. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. There is the bride. That's the church. And then there are guests. Guests. Who are the guests that are invited? The tribulation saints. All those people who believed. Maybe even the Old Testament saints. We, we don't know exactly. But that could be made up of all the Old Testament saints. It could be the Old Testament saints. Who will be in a status. But the point is, at this point... The Old Testament saints have not been raised to the presence of the Lord. But the tribulation saints are. 
And so to me, they are the ones who are singing this song, and they are proclaiming the beauty of this bride. And they see this preparation. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, that is the Lord, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now they knew about it because they speak of it as this is something that's been expectant. This is something that we've been waiting for. The marriage supper of the Lamb. But they are not the bride. There's a big difference when you go to a wedding between being a guest and being the bride. Would you say that? Yeah, there's pretty big difference. You could even be the maid of honor or the best man, but you're not the bride. You don't get to be the bride. And you don't get to be the groom. So that is a status, a relationship that God has made with believers in what we call the church age. We are the bride. And so this is something that God has given. And so they, looking at the bride, they see all these qualities. We'll talk some about that um, in our next session. But look at what it says in verse 9. And the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, do you think he's talking about the bride there? No, the, the bride is not, quote, invited. <laughs> it's her supper. <laughs> it's, it's her marriage. It's her relationship. Now, in the... In, in the Jewish pattern, and I'm, I'm not going to go into a complete look at this, but in the Jewish pattern, a marriage was something that was first done by the parents. And so sometimes even from childhood, this person is going to be married to this person. And the parents agree, and certain contracts are sealed, and that's the way it's going to be. Other times... It does happen as a man has reached a certain age and he has uh, reached, this was in, the, of course, the New Testament time, Old Testament. He reached a certain level in his life where he is able to go to a man and ask for the daughter. But the guy's going to look at him and say, yeah, but what am I getting out of this? Because if you're, if you're a jerk, you're not going to get my daughter. Because, first of all, you got nothing to give me. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of a contract. And so, you know, what, what have you got that I can get? Of course, then the bride, she had to have her stuff to appease the family of the, bride, of the groom. Because they're, they're taking a girl into their family. Really? How much money comes with her? Because if there's no money coming with her, you know, I'm not sure that this is a good deal, right? And so, so a lot of it in the old Jewish culture at that time had to do with transactions. What am I getting? What are you getting? You know, how much are we going to gain here? You know, Jan loves to watch these English period dramas 
like Pride and Prejudice, you know, and all those things, right? How many of you like those? I, I don't know. And so, uh, okay, don't tell anybody I told you this, but Elijah watched Pride and Prejudice and thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> don't tell him that I told on that. But anyway. I know, but um, so, but what? What's the big thing in all those period dramas? Getting married to somebody that's got money. But I mean, that's what they're really after. Uh, okay, you're going to marry so and so because we're almost broke, and we need money, and so we're we're making this deal. You're going to marry this person. I don't love them. I don't care. It doesn't matter. All right. Now, that doesn't have happen with Christ and his church. But anyway, <laughs> so in this marriage supper came after the wedding. It's so just like, you know, we have, but there's a little bit of difference. So the pledge was made. Then came the marriage. And then the bride and the groom go away to consummate the marriage. Now, I was privileged, honored, to be a best man at the wedding of a young Jewish man who I met during my time in the service, and we went through boot camp and marine training and OR tech school together, and, and so he invited me to his wedding, and he was Jewish, lived in suburb of Boston, and um, I had to get approval from the rabbi that I could be a part of the, of the wedding party. But uh, there were some strange rituals that they had. Because he told me, he says, now, soon as the wedding is complete, the bride and I go into this room where the marriage is supposed to be consummated. Now, how many think, that's pretty embarrassing? <laughs> Because all the guests stand outside the room, and you're inside. And, you know, it's like, okay, this is really weird. <laughs> and then they come out. All right, so they could be in there for a little bit. They could be in there for hours. So, you know, but that's, you know, that's kind of on the edge. <laughs> so he said, so, but the, but. The supper hasn't taken place yet. Because after they've been away, then they come back. And when they come back is when they invite the guests into the wedding. Now you say, man, I'm tired of waiting here. There's a ball game on. I got to get home. You know, I'm hungry. I don't know what they're going to feed me in there. Probably some, you know, chicken that's been sitting in a steamer for hours, you know, and it's got some horrible sauce on top of it, you know, whatever, and it's a, you know, um, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get ribs, <laughs> not at a Jewish wedding, so anyway, um, so, you know, so it's like, I can't wait here any longer, um, and I'm out of here, well, when they come out, guess what? You don't get invited in because 
You're not there. You weren't prepared. You didn't wait. All right. Can everybody give me five minutes? I know my time is kind of up, but give me five minutes. A parable. Look at the bottom of your page, too. The parable of the ten virgins. Now, I'm going to give everything away here right at the beginning. Here's the point. You're not a virgin. You're the bride. The virgins are her attendees. The groom wasn't coming to marry ten women. Right? But five left, so then he's only got to marry five. He wasn't marrying them. He married one. They went away, consummated the marriage, and then they return, and then they invite the guests in. So let's read the parable. Then the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. It was daytime when they started. Now it's going to be nighttime. Verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. That means lit them. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. They continue to go out. The word continuing to go out. Why? Because all you got is a wick and there's no oil in. Verse 9. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. Now while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Whoa, those are strong words. In verse 13, watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour. Now, first of all, in this parable, don't try to analyze everything. It's not for you to try to identify what every little thing in this is about. What's the parable about? Some who were ready and some who were not. Those who were ready got to become guests at the marriage supper. Those who were not and went away were not. Who is this about? About the Jewish people. About those who are upon the earth. When the Lord came to take his bride, where did they go? Away. For how long? How long did the? Seven years. So they went away for seven years. Some of the virgins... 
the Jews. Some of them opened their hearts. Some of them believed. Some did not. Those who believed are like those who had oil for their lamp. Those who did not believe were like those who had no oil. And so during this period of the seven years, have some Jews believed? Oh, yeah, 144,000 witnesses went out. And I'm sure that great numbers of Jewish people came to the Lord. But not all of them. Some of them said, I don't see anything in that. And so when the Lord did finally return, they had no oil. They had no faith. Right? They had no faith. They had no belief. They were not admitted to the marriage supper. So here's the point. Do you see the distinction between the bride and the virgins? And yet, this parable has been taught over and over for centuries. Well, you better keep oil in your lamp, buddy. <laughs> Give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Sing with a little bit of twang to it. So, you know, you got... How many know that song? All right. How many sang that song? But the truth is, you're not one of the virgins. You're the bride. You have a different relationship. You are one with the groom, who is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You and him are one. Just like in the marriage union, two become one and so it is that this is the relationship that's there the bride and the guests now when they go into the celebration who gets to celebrate does the bride celebrate the groom celebrate the guests celebrate yeah they're all in there together and yeah that's a one big party and so everybody gets to participate and everybody's there. And everybody will be in heaven. Jews who believed during the tribulation. Gentiles who believed during the tribulation. Some that were martyred. Some who lived all the way through the tribulation. Some who believed on the last couple days before the Lord returned. They lit their lamp and they were ready to come in. When it was announced, here he comes. He is coming. You know what? That's what we're going to read about at the end of this chapter. He's coming. And those who are prepared get to go in to the marriage supper. All right? So that's as far as I can go tonight. So meditate on that for a while. Now, if most of you have, many of you I know, have listened to Pastor Bob for years, and if you've listened to Bob, you've heard him teach this way, and he was the first person I heard that ever made sense of this parable, and from then on, it's like, I get it. Now it makes sense. Because before it just didn't make sense. But this is what it's about. So...
Thank God. Amen. Now, next week we're going to talk about being a bride, being part of that, the bride imagery that is found in the New Testament. And then we're also going to talk about the final preparation um, for the Lord's return. All right? So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord God, that you have uh, declared your purpose, your plan for us to bring us to yourself. And so the bride says, come, Lord Jesus. And so we prepare our hearts. But Father, also help us to have a compassion toward those who don't belong to this glorious family. Give us words that we might speak to them and encourage them and open their hearts and help them to see their need for salvation that is so easy and ready for them to receive by believing in your death, burial, and resurrection. I thank you, Father God, for the confidence that we have in you and that no matter what we face, you reign. And we praise you for all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.